Well, do you have a moral compass? Do you know the difference between right and wrong? I've been witnessing to an atheist friend for a number of years now. I met him through uh, Jill's family, my wife's family, and he really likes me for some reason. At first, I thought he was quite hostile uh, to Christianity and the discussion of theological matters, and so I did not speak much to him at all about God. But then I realized that, no, he is quite open to discussing God with people who are willing to have a reasonable discussion. And he actually, as he's found out more about me, quite likes me because he thinks that he and I move in a same uh, same sort of framework that we both look to reason for why we would believe anything, but he has taken a different direction. He has says that the evidence that he has seen has led him in one direction, and the evidence that I have seen has led me in another direction. And so he actually compares himself to being uh, Lex Luthor and I am Clark Kent. It's interesting that he has called himself Lex and not Clark and I am Lex, uh, but he sees that we are very similar and we have this antagonism with one another, but we're able to have these reasonable discussions with one another over the last few years. And just earlier this year, I met with him for a coffee, and we started to talk again about the moral argument against atheism. And basically, in the end, he comes down to, he flat out uh, said that he does not believe there is an objective right and wrong, that our conscience is simply an evolutionary product that we have had developed over the years that is actually just helpful for us as a human race, that the conscience there somehow protects us from harm and helps us pass on our DNA to the next generation and we move in that direction. And he says that he can live quite well within that view of right and wrong. But really, you cannot. When you reason that through, you can't live with such a belief that there is no right or wrong, that there is no ultimate objective right or wrong, because then you cannot go around telling other people that what they're doing is right or wrong. It may be in your conscience that something is wrong, but everybody's conscience is a bit different. And so someone else can have a view of something, and you can't say that it is wrong for them. Unless, of course, you can work out what is the best things, what are the best things for our species as a whole. But that requires so much data input that we just can't work that out. What is the best thing for the human race? When we take in all the factors uh, of, uh, of this world, what is the best thing for us? And so something like Hitler's eugenics, where he said we should remove the disabled from our population because they are a burden upon us, they are costly to us, they are a drain on resources, Hitler might be right. Or my friend says, oh no, but uh, we also see that love and empathy are actually helpful for us as a human race as well. And to go around murdering disabled people is not right. And for some reason, we must be able to preserve the human race by having this loving nature, even though really... Yes, disabled people are not that great in the land. And so really he's got no way of saying what is right or wrong. Hitler could be right with eugenics or he could be wrong. We just don't have the data, which means you can't actually live in this world with the words right and wrong. You can't go around telling someone, you can't tell yourself, oh, yes, this is what I must do today because you just don't know. And you can't tell your friends or your family what is right or wrong. If you see them doing something and you don't like it, you can't actually say to them what you're doing is wrong because you don't know. And then, of course, when it comes to society as a whole, 
How do you vote? How do you know which politician is in the right on a particular issue and which politician is in the wrong? And you really have no basis to say that this person should get in. You can't actually function in society if there is no right or wrong. We need a moral compass. We need to understand that there is a right and wrong if we are to function in this society. So what is your moral compass? Are you using your conscience to tell you what is right or wrong? Consciences are fickle. As I've said, one person's conscience will tell them one thing is right and another person's conscience will tell them that that is wrong. And have you ever seen your conscience evolve on different issues? We've seen politicians, even uh, President Obama in the United States, he has said he has evolved on the issue of homosexual marriage. That's his word. He's evolved on it. That he thought it was wrong in the past, but now he thinks it's right. Have you seen that in your own life, that what you thought previously was wrong, you now believe is right, or what in the past you thought was right, you now believe is wrong? I think if we're honest, we all admit that, yes, that is the case. So what is our moral compass? What do we use to define what is right and wrong, how we are to live in this world? And that brings me to my first main point this morning. The Word of God must be your moral compass. My first main point is the Word of God must be your moral compass. But does the Word of God claim to be a moral compass? Does it claim to tell us how to live? Yes, it does. And in this passage this morning, it does quite clearly. It tells us in a couple of ways. Firstly, we see that the Word of God helps us to live a life of purity. Verse 9 of Psalm 119, it says, How can a young man keep his way pure? How can we be pure? We want purity. We want to know that our life is right, that what we're doing is not, uh, not dirty, but pure. How do we do that? Well, it tells us in verse 9, by living according to your word, a living according to God's word. God's word tells us how to be pure. How else do we know that the word of God is a moral compass? Well, the word of God, secondly, helps us to seek God. We read that in verse 10. It says, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. We as humans, we want to know if there is a God. And if there is a God, what do we do to please that God? And so how do we know that there is a God? Do we use our brains and try and contemplate and imagine who God is? The Bible does say that we can understand that there is a God by the witness of creation. But to really know God, to know how we are to live in this world, we need the word of God. And that's what it says in verse 10. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. By following God's commands, by not straying from them, we are able to seek God, to know God. And so our moral compass about whether there is a God or not a God and whether we are pleasing God or whether we are not pleasing God comes from what the Bible says what the Bible says about who God is, what the Bible says about how we must live if we are to follow God. And then there's another way that the Word of God is our moral compass, and that is that the Word of God helps us not to sin. And we see that in verse 11. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, that I might not sin against you. 
the Word of God helps us not to sin. What is sin? It's something our culture doesn't like even being mentioned. I had to give testimony in a court uh, a few years ago, and I spoke about the person's sin in the court. In my affidavit that I'd submitted to the court, I mentioned that what the person had done was sinful. And when I was cross-examined by a lawyer, the lawyer said, uh, and so what you have said here about the person's, and then he almost wanted to put up inverted commas and say, sin of the person, because he just didn't feel like he could he could say it was sin that the person had committed. It had to be my words saying it was sin because in our culture we just don't talk about sin. We don't like the word. We don't like to think that we have committed transgression against God's word. And so part of our culture's uh, blindness is just to sin, is just to remove the word from our vocabulary, which is just absolute foolishness. It's like saying... You know, I have cancer, I don't like cancer, so I'm just going to change the name and call it something different and then it will go away. I can call it something, you know, it's a bit yucky or it's the thing that I just dislike that's a part of me. And so what it comes down to, cancer just becomes the equivalent of Brussels sprouts. I just don't like Brussels sprouts and I just don't like cancer in my life. But that's a serious misunderstanding of how serious cancer is and anyone would be foolish to just dismiss the word and, and then think that they've somehow solved the problem. And it's the same with sin. We need to understand what sin is, and if we are sinners, how to be free from sin. How do we get free from sin? Well, verse 11 told us, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word of God helps us, is our moral compass, to keep us from sin, to tell us what is sin and what is not sin so that the problem of sin starts to be solved as we understand the Word of God. The Word of God becomes our compass and directs us how to know what is sin and what is not sin and to solve our sin problem. So the Word of God is able to help us to uh, live a life of purity. The Word of God is able to help us seek God. The Word of God is able to keep us from sin. The question is, what commands in the scripture are we to follow if we are to seek God, be kept from sin, to have a life of purity? I mean, the Bible's a big book. I'll give you just uh, uh, two ideas as to what you are to do, what the Bible commands us to do. And first and foremost is that we're meant to obey the gospel. We're meant to obey the good news of Jesus Christ. We're meant to follow the commands that the gospel brings of repentance and faith. We are commanded by the Bible, if we want to be pure, if we want to seek God, if we want to be free from sin, then we must repent. We must turn from our sin. We must admit that we are sinners and are sorry about our sin and are going to seek not to sin anymore. That is what repentance is, a turning from your sin. And we must also have faith in Jesus Christ. We must believe in him and his death for us. If we are to seek God, be free from sin, and to have a life of purity. We're commanded to do that, to trust in Jesus Christ. John 6, 29 says, The work of God is this. The work of God is this. Is If you want to know what it is that God requires of you, here it is, to believe in the one he has sent. To believe in the one he has sent. Who is that? It's Jesus Christ. You must believe in Jesus Christ if you are to do the work of God. 
if you are to follow his commands. And if you do that, then you do become pure. You do get set free from sin. You do seek God if you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. It is this wonderful thing that we can become pure through repentance and faith. Faith in Jesus Christ's death. 1 John 1, 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, as Jesus is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. It's an amazing thing that when you trust in Jesus Christ, you do become pure. When you listen to what the word of God says about Jesus Christ, you do become pure. His blood purifies you from sin. You're, you become white as snow instead of being dark with your sin. It's a wonderful thing that the gospel commands us to do something that then brings purity into our lives, that we are in right standing before God. And then once we follow those commands to repent and believe, we obey the gospel, then we are to do further good works. We are to do the good works that God has ordained for us to do. He has prepared works for us. He saves us for good works. He doesn't save us by good works, by you know um, loving others, by having joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, giving to the poor, going to church on Sunday, having fellowship with others. Those kinds of things, they don't save you, but because you are saved, you do them. God has saved you to do those things. And how do you know what to do? Well, of course, it comes back to the word of God. Those are the things that are instructed for us to do according to the Scriptures. And so you know that these are right and good for you to do. Because you are a Christian, you do these things. So if you're not a Christian you're here today, understand what God is calling you to do. First and foremost, it's believe in Jesus Christ's death for you. That at the cross he was taking the penalty for your sin. That the wrath of God was poured out upon him instead of you. If you trust that that happened for you at the cross, then you are purified from your sins. You are set free from your sin. And I encourage you to do that. And then if you do that, then start to live a life of love for him and for his people and for those around you. Live a life of love, not because you want to be saved, but because you are saved through the death of Jesus Christ. So if we want to have a moral compass, then we need the Word of God. Sounds pretty easy. All we've got to do is follow the Word of God. But how do you know what the Word of God says? How do you know that my summary of what you should do as a Christian is right, that that you should repent of your sins and believe the good news of Jesus Christ? I just quoted two verses for you. Maybe I quoted them out of context. How do you know as a Christian, if you are a Christian, if you have repented and believed what God requires of you? Let's face it, if you follow your conscience, it is fickle. How do you know? Well, it's the Word of God. But then how, I mean, it's a big book. How do you know that those who teach you are teaching the right thing? How do you know unless, of course, you study it? And that is my second main point this morning. The Word of God must be studied. The Word of God must be studied. It is our moral compass. And that means that if it is our moral compass, then we must consult the compass if we are to follow it. And we must study it. It is a big book. It requires hard work on our part to understand what is contained within its pages. 
and so it must be studied. And the Bible actually tells us that in this part of Psalm 119 as well. It gives us some ideas as to what we must do with the Word of God if we are to understand it and study it. And the first is we must hide God's Word in our hearts. We must hide God's Word in our hearts. And we see that in verse 11. He says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. What does it mean to hide God's word in your heart? Well, another way you could translate it is stored up or treasure up God's word. I think it's talking about memorizing God's word. Having God's word inside your head. And it's a very sad fact that memorization of the scriptures is very much underrated, I think, in our culture, in our Christian culture even. In the past, people used to memorize books all the time. And of course, when you can't read and you didn't have access to a copy of the scriptures, you would memorize parts of it. But we just don't seem to do that today. And it is something that uh, in this book, Spiritual Disciplines of a Christian Life, Whitney speaks about being one of the real problems uh, that people just don't seem to think that memorization of scripture is worthy of their time. I'll read for you. He's got a whole uh, section, a whole chapter in this excellent book. Sadly, I couldn't get a copy for the bookstore. It is one of the best books I know on uh, disciplines of the Christian life, Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life by Don Whitney. And he says in the section on memorization, he opens it up with, Many Christians look on the spiritual discipline of memorizing God's word as something tantamount to modern-day martyrdom. Ask them to memorize Bible verses and they react with about as much eagerness as a request for volunteers to face Nero's lions. How come? Perhaps because many associate all memorization with the memory efforts required of them in school. It was work and most of it was uninteresting and of limited value. Frequently heard also is the excuse of having a bad memory. But what if I offered you $1,000 for every verse you could memorize in the next seven days? You've got seven days, I'll give you a 1000 bucks for every verse you memorize. Do you think your attitude towards Scripture memory and your ability to memorize would improve? Any financial reward would be minimal when compared to the accumulating value of the treasure of God's Word deposited within your mind. We just don't seem to value the Word of God. We can do it. We can put God's Word in our head. We just don't value putting it in there. We don't think that the study and the hard work required to put it in is worth it. And yet, you see, around the world, many Muslims will memorize the entire Quran. And Christians, how many Christians do you know who have memorized the entire New Testament when it's only a little bit longer than the Quran? And it's an amazing thing. When you memorize the scriptures, it really does help you. If you sit down and memorize, uh, let's just face one of the uh, smaller epistles, if you memorize the whole thing, you start to notice things that you've never noticed before. As you try and remember every word that is contained in a verse or every word contained in a passage or every word contained in the book of the Bible, you start to notice correlations between other parts of the, the book, different chapters. And then if you memorize one of Paul's letters and another one of Paul's letters, there's surprising overlap. It's like it's written by the same guy. And you, you start to realize that, yeah, this, this, there's correlations all over the place here. And the amazing thing is 
the Word of God becomes available to you at any time. When you're being tempted, the Word of God is there. It doesn't matter where you are. In the car where you don't have a Bible that you can open up and remind yourself of the temptation that you may be facing, you've got it there in your head to rebuke you. You've got the Word of God there when you're witnessing to people. You can quote bits of Scripture to them and say, this is what the Word of God says, rather than, I mean, let's face it, sometimes you don't have a Bible handy to be able to witness to someone. That question comes up about God and you just don't have a Bible or it looks a bit funny if you get out a Bible and they start to back off. But if you've got the Bible in your head, then you can actually read the Bible to them without looking awkward. You can do it in the lunchroom of the of the workplace, just the two of you while other people are there and no one knows that you've got a Bible and you're reading it out to them because it's in your head. And in counselling, when someone sits down to you at church and bursts into tears and you don't know what to do, you've got the Word of God there ready to go in your head. You can counsel them. And in suffering, when you're in great pain and going through sorrow, the Word of God is there and available to you. If you've memorised passages that are helpful on suffering, it's there and available to you. And let's face it, if you're in a situation where the Bible is taken from you, would that be a sad event is the first thing for you to consider. But let's face it, if you're locked up in a prison and they don't give you a Bible, how lost would you be unless you've got it in your head and you can start repeating verses to yourself? No one can take away from you what's in your mind. It doesn't matter if they strip you of all clothing, all books, everything is gone. If you've still got the Bible in your head, you will be okay because you've got God's voice speaking in your mind. Memorization of Scripture is an important part of studying God's Word, and that's what it says here in verse 11. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You don't want to sin? Hide God's Word in your heart. Put it in there. Keep it in your mind. How else can you study God's Word? It's not just memorization. We also see number two is sit under teaching. Verse 12 says, Praise be to you, O Lord, teach me your decrees. Teach me your word, teach me your commands. We need to sit under teaching of God's word. We need God to teach us his word. How does he do that? He does it by his Holy Spirit. And he does that by speaking through our brothers and sisters in Christ who have God's Holy Spirit in them, speaking through them to us. So you sit under God's teaching when you go to church and you hear the word of God preached. You sit under God's teaching when you go to Bible study groups and you sit with brothers and sisters in Christ and the most profound things come out of people's mouths. I'm often amazed at the most profound things that come out of my mouth. And I know it's not me because I don't think those kinds of things. But then it comes up and you go, this is the Holy Spirit. And I see it coming out of people all over the place. It can be even new Christians. You go, wow, yes, you're right by what you're saying. And it's evidence that the Holy Spirit is teaching us. We need to be taught by God. And, of course, Christian books are also helpful. I can't uh, underestimate the benefit of the Holy Spirit speaking through books like this one and the other books that I've reviewed and the books on that bookstore. I've read most of them over there. There are a few put on there that I, um, I didn't choose, but pretty much most of the books there I have read, and they're excellent books. And if you've got any other uh, subject that you want to book on, I've pretty much got a book for you because I've benefited so much from the Holy Spirit teaching me through the words of brothers and sisters in Christ in what they've written down. If we want to know God's word, we need to be taught God's word. That's what it says here in this text. 
And so we need to seek out the teaching. And it's a wonderful thing that you come to camp, you're here surrounded by creation, and what are you doing? You're sitting in a room listening to me talk. It's quite incredible, really. But it shows that you're wanting to be taught the word. You're knowing, you know that if you're to follow God's commands, you need to be taught. It's not enough to have the Bible yourself. You need brothers and sisters in Christ around you. You need godly leaders to teach you the word by the Holy Spirit inside them. How else can you study God's word? Well, number three, we can recount God's word. And that's there in verse 13. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. We need to declare God's word to those around us. Some people say if you want to know something, the best way to do it is to teach it. And so when we are called to counsel one another, which we all have a responsibility to do, we actually learn more about God's word. When you know that someone's going through a difficult situation, you think, what can I say to them? Well, then you might read a book that's going to help you understand the Bible better so that you can quote God's word to that person, that you can do what it says here. With your own lips, you recount God's word. If you want to understand the Bible, then you need to declare the Bible to others around you. It's not good enough to keep your mouth closed and always be this passive receiver of God's word. Declare God's word actively yourself. And as you do so, you actually learn a thing or two as well. When you see someone respond to God's word in the way that you are counselling them with it, it's really helpful to yourself that you see their reaction, you see how they're helped, and that encourages you that that part of God's word is indeed true and helpful and is a great counsellor for you if you go through that situation in the future. So we need to recount God's word. How else can we study God's word? Well, we need to meditate upon it. It says that in verse 15. Verse 15, it says, I meditate on your precepts. We need to meditate upon God's word. What does it mean to meditate? Sadly, the word meditation has been taken over by Eastern religions and you think if you meditate, then you put your fingers together and you say, om a number of times and you are meditating. That is not the traditional understanding of meditation. Meditation is taking something and considering it, thinking about it, and then applying it to your life. And that's what we need to do with God's Word. We can't simply treat God's Word as this academic source of knowledge that we listen to and we, we like hearing about it, but we never take it and apply it to our own lives. God's Word was written long ago, and there are situations today where the Word of God does not specifically speak to. Let's face you know, speeding on the roads. There's no thou shalt not speed in the Bible. There's no direct application made there. But when we read something like Romans 13 where it says to submit to the authorities that are over us, what does that mean? Oh, yeah, maybe I shouldn't speed. Maybe I should do what the law of the land says. And that is called meditating upon God's word. It is taking God's word and applying it to your life. That it's not this academic theoretical knowledge that it is wisdom for your life. There's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is an understanding of facts. Wisdom is an application of knowledge in our lives. And that's what we need to do when we meditate. We are getting wisdom. We are putting the application, we're making, applying knowledge to our lives. And that's what we need to do if we are to seek God, be pure, keep from sin. We're meant to study God's word by meditating upon it, not just skim read it of a morning and say, oh, I've done my Bible study for the day. We need to meditate upon God's word. 
apply it to our lives. Also, number five, how else can we study God's word? We can consider God's word. We should consider God's word, and that's in verse 15. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. What does it mean to consider God's word? It means to look at it, to fix our eyes on it, to read it. We need to look at God's word if we are to know God's word, to then be able to keep seeking God, to be pure, to keep from sin. We need to consider God's word if we are to study it. We're meant to look at the thing. And that goes into another way to study God's word, and that's uh, my sixth point this morning, is not neglect God's word, and that's in verse 16. Verse 16 says, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. I will not neglect it. I will consider it. I will meditate upon it. I will not neglect it. I will make it a priority in my day to consider God's word, to meditate upon God's word, to listen to God's word. Daily study of God's word should be a priority for all of us as Christians. Now, I've heard people in the past say, oh, the Bible never says it one in one verse that we should study God's word each day. We must read our Bibles every day. Well, there's hints of it at least. You've got things like Psalm 1 where it says, uh, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Day and night. But I have found a text, I don't know if you know this one, that says that we must read God's word every day. Deuteronomy 17 verse 18 through to verse 20. Deuteronomy 17 verse 18, talking about the king of Israel. Look it up with me. It's a, it's a good text because I think it encourages us to know that we should read God's word every day. Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. It says, When he, that's the king of Israel, takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself a, on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Here the king of Israel is given an explicit command to make a copy of the word which I must admit I've never written out by hand from Genesis to Revelation, a copy of God's word. At this point, of course, the law is referring to uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, but I haven't even done that. But I do have, I've made sure I have a copy, that somebody else has written out a copy for me. And of course, these days it's a wonderful blessing with the printing press that we don't have to pay exorbitant amounts of money to have a copy of God's word, which they did in the past. But we're to make sure we have a copy and we're to read it all the days of our life. Now, you may be saying, well, that's the king of Israel. I'm not the king of Israel. I don't have to do that. But what does it say there in verse 20? He's meant to do it and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left. The king is meant to be taken down a peg or two to doing what his brothers do. If it's good for the king of Israel, it should be good for us as well. And just like the king of Israel may say, oh, well, it's good for the people, then it's good for me. We're meant to read God's word each day. And we should want to read God's word each day. Why? Well, that brings me to my third main point this morning. 
My first was that the work guide is a moral compass. The second was that it must be studied. But why bumble, why not bumble along in the world and, and sort of make mistakes? Why bother putting all this effort into memorizing God's word, reading God's word, considering God's word, meditating upon God's word, recounting God's word? Why bother? Well, my third main point this morning is that the word of God gives true joy. The word of God gives true joy. And we see that in this passage that we're looking at this morning. The first way we can see that the word of God gives joy is that it brings us to praise the Lord. It brings us to praise the Lord. Verse 12, it says, Praise be to you, O Lord, teach me your decrees. As this person is taught God's decrees, they see that they are praising God. And when we're praising something, are we sad? Are we unhappy? No. We praise when we are joyful, when we're happy with something. And that is what happens if we study God's word. We end up joyfully praising God, honouring him as he deserves. But that's not the only hint of joy from the word of God in this passage. And a second way that we see the word of God brings joy is in verse 14, where it brings rejoicing as one rejoices in great riches. Verse 14 says, I rejoice following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. Let's face it, money does make people happy. And it makes us happy as well. If we didn't have any money, there's a good chance we wouldn't be here today. We'd be at work trying to get some money so that we could have enough food to eat, have clothing, have shelter. And then, of course, there's all the pleasures that money can bring as well. Money does make us happy. And the Bible makes us happy as one rejoices in great riches. That happiness that we experience from riches, there's a happiness also to be obtained from the Word of God. As one rejoices in great riches, we can rejoice in the Word of God. And then the third way that we see God's Word brings joy is in verse 16, where it says that the Word of God brings delight. Verse 16 says, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. We delight in things that make us happy. We're joyful when we're delighting in something. You may be saying, okay, well, how does the word of God make me joyful? How does it make me happy? Well, two ways that I'll give you. Firstly, it gives you peace in this world. One of the big struggles in our life is that we don't feel a sense of peace, particularly when bad stuff happens to us. We get in all sorts of turmoil. We get all anxious about the bad things that are happening. And we are not peaceful. And if we don't have a moral compass, if we only have our conscience, as my atheist friend does, and even then he's sort of, I don't know whether it's right or wrong, Anything's, anything could be right, anything could be wrong, I really don't know. When something bad happens to you, you have no idea what to do in that situation. And if you have no idea what to do, what follows next? Worry, anxiety, Sadness, a lack of peace, a lack of joy in your life. But if you have the word of God and it has told you how to behave in times of suffering, it has told you that you have eternal life rather than eternal damnation for your sins, that whatever happens to you in this world, even if someone destroys your body, your soul is safe, there's a sense of joy that can permeate anything that goes on in your life. Because you have the word of God, which you are standing firmly upon, and so you have great peace, which brings great joy. 
Money brings joy to some extent. If you have pain coming to your world, you can throw some money at it and it can often go away. But there are things that money can't make go away. Certain illnesses, death itself. But the Word of God can make those things go away. The Word of God can help you endure sickness. The Word of God will walk you through the valley of the shadow of death. You know that even if you die, you will be happy because death is just a doorway through to your next life and your next life is far better than this one. So the Word of God then brings joy not just in this world but also in the next world. It's amazing to consider what heaven actually is. We don't have a lot of information about heaven but we have enough to know that it is a wonderful place where we will be eternally happy where we will have joy for all of eternity. And why is that? Because we follow what the Word has said about Jesus Christ. We have turned from our sins, we have trusted in Him, we have followed Him faithfully, and so we will have joy for all eternity. So even though you may not experience too much joy here on earth, and let's face it, some of our brothers and sisters around the world at this moment are not experiencing too much joy in terms of contentment, pleasures in this world. They're in prisons, they're being beaten, for being Christians. But they know that the Word of God brings it brings them joy as one rejoices in great riches. They know that they have great riches in the Scriptures because they're going to a place where they will have indeed great riches, where they will no longer be in prison, where they'll no longer be persecuted, where they'll no longer be beaten, but they will be glorified and exalted by the one who matters most of all, God the Father. And so they have a joy to look forward to. They can rejoice in what is to come, even while they suffer greatly. And we can do the same, no matter what you may be going through. You may have had a tough week. But if you look to the Word of God for comfort, for joy, you'll find it. It will give you peace now, and it will give you peace for all eternity. So we've seen that the Word of God is a moral compass. We've seen that the Word of God must be studied and we've seen why we should do those things because ultimately the Word of God makes us happy. We can glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's a wonderful thing to have the Word of God. There is nothing better. There are no greater riches in this world than the Word of God. And so we should be willing to study it as much as we can. So do you recognize that the Word of God is your moral compass? that the Word of God must be studied. If you were to have it dictate what is the morality in your life, then you must study it, and that the Word of God gives you true joy. Do you use it? Do you study it? Do you rejoice in this book? Let us come before our God now. Let us speak with him. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Word. We thank you that it does teach us what is right and wrong. It teaches us the way to purity, to be cleansed from our sinfulness by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, we thank you that your word is available to us. We pray that we may indeed study it. May we hide it in our hearts. May we sit under its teaching. May we recount it to those around us. May we meditate upon it, consider it, and not neglect it. Oh, Lord, we'd be so foolish if we have such a wonderful gift from you that we never take advantage of that and study it. But, Lord, we pray that we may do so 
because we see that it is a source of great joy. May we be happiest when we are studying your word and putting its commands into practice. May we be happiest when we are considering the joy that is set before us in Jesus Christ, particularly in the eternity of heaven. Lord, we pray that we may indeed rejoice in your word as one rejoices in great riches. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.